You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, this is Five Things That Make Life Better, and I'm Lisa Birnbach. You won't want to miss this week's podcast. My old friend Al, that's Senator Al to you, Al Franken is my guest, and we caught up, as you will hear. I don't know about you, but when I even hear his voice, I just feel reassured. I feel happy because he's funny, but he has some wisdom and some calm, which makes me calm. I'd rather he were in the Senate than not in the Senate, but I'll take what I can get. And as spring turns to summer, a podcaster's thoughts turn to other things like lilacs and peonies weddings and babies and the beach. At least this podcaster's thoughts do. I'm still in Los Angeles reveling in my family and not having to run anywhere, just hanging out with them. In the olden days, when I would come to Los Angeles, I'd go from meeting to meeting to meeting. And now nobody knows I'm here. So don't tell them. I'm just here with my kids. And it's wonderful. The other night, we all had dinner together And my exhibits, my three exhibits, because my exhibit-in-law, of course, is here, they were laughing hysterically together. And that unbridled joy was just so wonderful to see. I'm going to hold that image with me for a long time. As a matter of fact, it's going to be a screensaver, so it'll help. Sorry, Exhibit C wasn't here. We wish you had been here with us. Now, As I have hinted prodigiously, we will be wrapping up the five things that make life better podcast very soon. In fact, next week will be our final episode. It's been a wonderful few years, 149 weeks to be precise, but who's counting? Filled with terrific conversations and ideas from thoughtful, funny, important, and smart guests. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. We'll talk more about the whole show, the concept, and what's coming up next, next week. But for now, here are the five things that make my life better this week. Number one, a kiss from this guy, my grand exhibit. He's a bit of a lover boy, and getting a kiss on the cheek is guaranteed if only you ask him for one, which I do. What is so great is when he sees me now, his eyes light up, which is exactly why I came to California. Number two, Santa Barbara. Exhibit B and I went on a day trip because she likes it there. And, you know, we wanted to see what all the fuss was about. When I say we, I mean I, because I wanted to see the place where Meghan Markle and Prince Harry live and Ellen and Oprah and many other Los Angelinos. I also wanted to meet my Instagram friend, Olivia Joffrey, who writes, paints and draws and makes beautiful caftans. The thing about Santa Barbara and Montecito are that it's beautiful, manicured, like a kind of West Coast Palm Beach, maybe a little less precious. And I guess Since we saw Sharon Osbourne there, I guess it is less precious. Number three, recording podcasts with my son. Exhibit A is a musician and a voice actor among many other talents, and he has a recording booth at his house and one at his office. The sound quality that you're listening to right now is superb. Usually I record at home in New York just when a siren is whizzing past our building. 
it's really fun to work with him and enjoy his expertise. Number four, palm trees. They make me happy because to me, they're a code for a sunny, warm place, even if it happens to be misty and gray out. I've loved palm trees since I was a little girl, and my parents took my brothers and me to the Caribbean on school vacations. And of course, they're everywhere out here. And number five, inspiration. I'm feeling open to new projects, new flavors, new styles, and ideas. Don't worry, I traveled with two Lacoste shirts and a bunch of button-down shirts, too. Those things will never change. Don't go away. Senator Al Franken is up next. Al Franken, comedy writer, nonfiction writer, senator, and host of the Al Franken podcast. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure and good to be talking. I have really talked to you in so long. I left New York, let's see, in 2005 to go back home to Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Of course, I had lived here for about 30 years, came here in 75, you know, for SNL, right? And stayed right. here because raised my kids here. And then we went back to Minnesota and ran for the Senate and was in the Senate for eight years, eight and a half years. And now we've moved back to New York because I have grandchildren here. And we'll talk about those would be right. one of my five things, by the way, my grandchildren. Well, yeah, of also course. Also friends. Of friends course. is one of my things. And I count you as one of those. Thank you. Thank you. And back at you. Let's talk about SNL for a second. Alan Zweibel, with whom you worked, said to me mm -hmm. sometime in the last year that he could not write for today's show. Do you feel the same way? Uh, I'd love to hear why he said that. It would be different writing for this show. Let me explain to the audience when I was there. I was with Zweibel for the first five years. Alan Zweibel famously wrote Update, a lot of Update, also did a lot of writing with Gilda Radner for Rosanne, Rosanna, right. Dana, all kinds of stuff, you know, and it was very close to Gilda. So then I left after five years, uh, the first five years, along with Zweibel. I came back, though, five years later when mm -hmm. Lauren came back, and then I did 10 more seasons. So I did 15 seasons. And yeah, the show is different. Uh, it always evolves anyway. And I did a lot of the political stuff over those right. uh, 15 seasons. I wrote a lot of that with Jim Downey. I don't know if you know Jim. Brilliant, brilliant writer. And actually, he's pretty conservative. Yes, so I understand. Yeah. And we had this thing, which is we didn't think it was the role of the show to have a political stance. We wanted to reward the audience for knowing stuff, but not punish them for not. Meaning ah. we wanted people who watched the sketch, who knew a lot about politics, to be rewarded for knowing that and just maybe see it on a slightly higher plane. And then for people who didn't know much about politics who were watching the show, which of course is a lot of people, for them not to be punished for not knowing stuff. There's some really talented people there, obviously, and I write sketches in my head all the time that I think would be good for them. 
for example, I just wrote something that I'm going to put on my podcast, which is, okay, so I just had Andy Slavitt on. Andy Slavitt is one of the lead advisors on the Corona Task Force. Okay. And he was head of Medicare and Medicaid under Obama and on CNN and MSNBC. He's now at the White House and giving me a lot of updates on stuff. And he was saying that the people who are most resistant to taking the vaccine are Republican men. And so right. it gave me the idea. And I have Dana Carvey for my podcast. Every once in a while comes in and plays Biden. And mm -hmm. Anthony Tamanik does an amazing Trump. And so amazing. It, it, yes. Yeah. And so my idea was simply that they should do a public service announcement together. <laughs> and uh, which uh, they're not going to do. But that would be basically, you know, because we want everyone to take this one. It works. Right. And, you know, no one who has taken this thing has had an adverse reaction. Have you had your shots? I've had both my shots. Yes, I have. Okay. So the fact of the matter is that if you get the two vaccines, you will not get seriously ill from COVID. You probably won't get infected. We need herd immunity. So we need between, I had also Dr. Fauci on my podcast, and Ooh. we need about between 70 and 85% of Americans to take the vaccine. Now, that depends on things like what the progress of the variants are, et cetera, right? right. So that's why we need these 50% of Republican men to get the shot. So the idea, <laughs> the comedic idea, which if I was at Saturday Night Live, I would do, is to have Biden reluctantly have to do a PSA <laughs> with Trump and it would be under Trump's conditions. Of course. And then a Trump would basically have to take credit for <laughs> what he's trying to do. And of course, in a way, you know, it, you know, look, the idea of let's get a vaccine as fast as we can uh, at the beginning of this, that doesn't really count as an idea. But okay, let's give it to him. <laughs> and like Operation Warp Speed is a name. Okay, fine. I think Barron came up with that, by the way. Anyway, so <laughs> let him take credit for it. And there are the people like Laura Ingram, whose own brother writes on Twitter, don't listen to a word she says. She's terrible. Yesterday, she was talking about how ridiculous it is that Biden is forcing the country to be vaccinated. Jesus. I mean, honestly. Yeah, Honestly, isn't Rupert Murdoch, shouldn't he be held responsible for the unbelievable wave of dishonesty that's blanketed half the country? Well, I wrote a book about Fox. Yes, you did. Uh, yes, you did. All of this. The liars. Lies yep. and lying liars who tell them a fair and balanced look at the right. And before that, I'd written Rush Limbaugh, the big fat idiot, and other yeah, observations. We're gonna, and, yeah, we're going to talk about him. Yeah, too, and yeah. look, this is very dangerous stuff. And there are now two universes of information, information and disinformation. And right. the disinformation universe includes Fox and includes a tremendous amount of stuff on social media and Breitbart and other stuff on the internet and other... QAnon, yeah. Yeah, and it's very, very, very dangerous stuff. And the fact that Trump did get vaccinated and didn't do it publicly says so much about him. 
But yeah, you have these people, Tucker Carlson, these hosts at Fox, they're spreading this information. And Rupert Murdoch got the shot. He got the shot. Yeah. And it's really unbelievably irresponsible because people don't understand how effective this is. You know, if you've had the vaccines, continue to wear your masks because it's possible that you'll be asymptomatic and carrying it. But we don't know. We still don't know if you're contagious. But it's a good idea to wear a mask anyway. If you think about the number of people who have gotten the flu over the last year, minuscule. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the people who have gotten true. colds, minuscule. That is true. And that's because people have been wearing masks and also been social distancing and also been staying inside their home for a year. Yeah, that's right. But the fact is, is that there are people in Asia who wear masks. You know, two years ago, if I was in LAX and a plane load came over from Asia and they were wearing masks. I go, what are they doing that for? Well, this is why they're doing it. Yeah. And you look at those Asian countries, they conquered this thing. They knew what to they do. They did. They also, when they had visitors, they also made sure they had phone numbers and they contact traced and they made sure if you didn't have an international phone that you had a local phone. And they did things that we never do. I mean, I know people who've come to this country during the pandemic and no one in the United States airport that they've arrived in from another country has said, where did you come from? You just get out and you know, run for your bags. Yeah, so, we really botched this thing. We botched and, it. And it we... was tragic. And the messaging you're hearing from Fox is just adding to the tragedy. And, you know, if we don't get critical mass, if we don't get herd immunity, this is going to cost, not only just cost a tremendous number of people getting sick and dying, but also not being able to open up our society. Yeah, I don't understand how a person, and then we can move on to something else, but I don't understand how a person can read, even a Fox News consumer can read that there are 500,000 deaths it's over 530,000. Over 530,000 deaths due to COVID and think <laughs> that it's a fluke or a lie or still would rather not take the vaccine. But, you know, if I understood those people, I'm afraid I might be one of those people. I don't know. Well, the, it, it, it is a steady diet of disinformation. And a lot of this is social media. You know, in Minnesota this past year, in the last election, the redder areas of Minnesota were redder. Mm. And, you know, I stay in touch with like, I did a call not long ago, a Zoom with Democrats in Otter Tail County. And that's a very red area. That's in the Northwest part of Minnesota. And their neighbors are getting a lot of disinformation and they get it on talk radio, they get it from Fox, mm -hmm. but they also get it on social media. And this is Facebook. Their whole thing is to keep you on Facebook. And mm -hmm. their algorithms know you better than you know yourself. Because they know every decision, every click you've made. And they know right. what keeps you on. And a lot of people want to stay on when they get agitated. Yes. And they get inflamed by the inflammatory rhetoric that they're casually and then less casually looking for. Right. And as a result, this is a real crisis in our country and we have to do something about it. And it's complicated, but we need to look at these platforms having some responsibility for the information that is put out over their platforms.
Absolutely. Al, when you were serving in the Senate for those eight and a half years, and I loved your book, Giant of the Senate. I'm sorry. Al yeah. Giant of the Senate. Yes. And I learned a lot about how government works and how slowly it works and how it's like a tide that picks up stray shells and sea glass, to put it poetically. But you talked about working across the aisle. It seemed that even as recently as your tenure, there was a spirit of cooperation that seems to have disappeared into some kind of gutter, you know, impermeable gutter between the two parties. Things have gotten did you progressively see that? worse. And yeah, did you didn't see that? Oh, I did see. Or, or did you? I did. I yeah. did. Of course I did. And no, it got worse and worse. When I got there, it was bad. And what McConnell did during the Obama administration was filibuster pretty much everything. Right. He filibustered more executive nominees than had been filibustered in the entire previous history of the country. That's incredible. We, we are going to have to figure out how to address the filibuster. You had Norm Ornstein on, I know. Yes, I guess, right. As well, Norm and I have been actually talking about it for 12 years. When I first got to the Senate, I think it was the first week. You do your last votes on Thursday evening, and then you fly home, basically. Right. So I did my last vote, and I'm getting on the subway from the Capitol to the Hart office building. And I see a Republican colleague of mine, and I say, have a great weekend. I'll see you on Monday. And he says to me, oh, I'm not going to be here on Monday. It's a cloture vote. And a cloture vote is a vote to end a filibuster. And you need 60 to end the filibuster the way it is now. So he had no intention. No, he didn't have to show up. There was no reason right. for him to show up. And that's when I went, this is not right. The filibuster is something that is a privilege that the minority has. If they are objecting to something strongly enough and they filibuster, they should have some stake in it. They should have yes. some skin in the game. So what Norm and I sort of developed was just reversing it, that instead of 60 from the majority having to vote to break a filibuster, that you need 41 of the minority that wants the filibuster have to vote to keep it going. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's really damn smart. Look, when I said there are two universes of information, the information yeah. universe and the disinformation universe, the disinformation universe is expanding. Okay, so going forward with these two universes who don't like to talk to one another or communicate, how do we fix what's broken? Well, you fix it at the ballot box, you fix it by winning. And that's why this is such an right. existential issue that we're talking about. So that's how you do it. You you have to win. You have to win. And it's unfortunate that that's the way it is, but that's the way it is. But let's say that happens. We now have a fragile majority in the House and a more fragile one in the Senate. When, let's say, we grow that majority, that doesn't mean that the 40% will turn around and start reading, you know, quote unquote, the right newspapers and listening to our podcasts. They're still going to have that alternative universe. Yeah, and that's why I say I that. I just wonder how. That is, yeah. that is something we also need to address. And that has to do, I think, with looking at these platforms. At the social media, At the yeah. social media platforms and yeah. saying, you know, you have to take some responsibility for what you allow on it. And they do a little bit just for show, but we're going to have to look at how to do that. 
It's unbelievable to me that we are still sort of hamstrung by Facebook, but we are. Well, it's a conundrum because we believe in freedom of speech and these are platforms and you want people to be able to speak, but then you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. So that's the balance. And we have to figure out how to strike the proper balance. And right now it's out of whack. It's out of whack. It's really out of whack. I often wonder if I had grown up with an internet, would I have made it to middle age? And I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like I was a very unpopular kid who might have just been bullied to death. And not to death, not to actual death, but you know, uh, it's a very, no, it's a very tough way to grow up to death because yes, there are, and, and that's another aspect of social media, this bullying stuff, and you know, that's part and parcel of this problem, and that's a very, very difficult, another very difficult thing, and we saw Mrs. Trump, Melania Trump, her whole thing was anti-bullying. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> and, The craziest. And married to the biggest bully of them all. Of all time. I know. Now, is there, other than poor Mitt Romney, who I've started to feel a little bit sorry for, but not that sorry for. I wouldn't feel too sorry. Exactly. There's other people in this world. (laughs) Yeah. No, exactly. Sympathy for. My my sympathy for. Is there anyone on the Republican side who you think in their heart of hearts, if they could vote anonymously, if they were at the moment of truth at the pearly gates, they would say, you know, I did it for the votes, but I didn't believe a word of it. Do you think there's anyone like that? Well, you know, it's easy to lie yourself, too. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that. And, you know, obviously, for example, if it had been an anonymous vote, on whether to convict or not on the impeachment charges, I think that would have been different. Yes. Yeah, I understand why people want to hold on to their seats. It was the best job I ever had. It's a good job, yeah. uh, You can do things. And I did probably because I came there not as a politician and as someone who had to start in the city council and work his way up. I felt more freedom. Also, I had Paul Wellstone's seat, and Paul was someone in Minnesota. Paul would sometimes... Like he, he voted against going the Iraq war, basically. Right. And a lot right. of people thought, oh boy, goodbye. That was in an election year in 2002. And actually, even though most Minnesotans were for the war in Iraq, his standing went up in the polls because people respected him and they mm-hmm. wanted to have somebody who actually that rare person who doesn't do what so many of my former colleagues do. I had the pleasure of going to a lecture of his when he was a professor at Carleton. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, my God. I mean, when he became a senator, I didn't feel like I had a stake in it, but I was thrilled for him and thrilled for your state to have had someone who is that passionate about the American Constitution and how it works. Yeah. Paul was a friend of mine, and that terrible, terrible tragedy and loss for this country and for his sons, and just for Minnesotans, it was crushing, just crushing. Al, do you think you'll find another way to get back into politics in an uh, official, elected, or appointed way? I'm keeping that open, certainly. Again, it was the best job I ever had. And, you know, it wasn't as much fun as writing on Saturday Night Live, but I love that job. And I love serving people in Minnesota. 
And also, I love the things I could accomplish. There was sometimes you'd accomplish something that was incredibly meaningful that didn't get a lot of attention. I'll give you one example foster kids. Mm. I started taking interest in foster kids. And it's very typical for a foster child to have 10, 11, 12 different sets of foster parents. It's just the way it happens. And it used to be, until I passed this law as part of the reform of No Child Left Behind, that if you were in school and you've got new foster parents and your new foster parents were a different school district, you had to go to school in the new school district. And very often, so foster kids, the biggest constant in their life is school. Right. And because you may have a teacher that is really important to you. You may have an activity that's really important to you. You may have these things called friends. You may have a teacher who has noticed you in a way that makes you feel That's good. right. Or, you know, you yeah. may have a drama teacher or a chess coach or a cross country coach right. or being drama or whatever. You may want to stay in that school and they couldn't. So I just wrote an amendment. I wrote a piece that said they have the choice to stay in that school. Wow. And the new school district has to work with the old school district and figure out who pays for the transportation. And first I had wow. resistance yeah. to this because, oh, that's an unfunded mandate. I go, that's crazy, you guys. <laughs> and, and ultimately, yeah. I started with not getting a lot of support to unanimous. And that was bipartisan. Ah, well, it's like that. You've helped untold number of kids have a better day, a better week, a better year. And that's not the kind of thing that we hear about. Yeah. Somewhere there's a kid in a play with his friends that otherwise wouldn't be. And, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Your grandchildren are not yet school-aged or are they school-aged? I have a seven-year-old who is in second grade. I have a five-year-old who is in preschool here in New York, and they do go. They go in person, and they have- They go in yeah, person, wow. very rigorous protocols. I have a four-year-old who did go to preschool before this happened, but now doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I have one that's about to be two next month who doesn't go to school yet, but she will be in preschool next year. Wow. It's just interesting also the social aspects of it's not just among the foster population, you see it more profoundly, but I guess the homeschooling digital virtual school has become a very difficult burden for a lot of parents, understandably, especially if they're essential workers or work in hospitals. How do you take care of your kids who are at school at home when you can't be home? Yeah, and there and you can't afford childcare. Well, there are a lot of parents in this bind. My daughter works for the DC public school system, and one of the things that she did, and I did a podcast on this, was work very hard so that parents who needed to work because they needed to work, that their kids could go somewhere. You know, the school wasn't open, but what she did was get about fifty some buildings open and get volunteers to be with these kids. And these wow. kids would have social media. They'd also get exercise. They'd get the socialization. So that was very important. But this has been extremely tough on kids who live in poverty. They did move from Washington, D.C. to L.A. a few months ago. 
my daughter still works mm-hmm. for the DC public school system because she does it remotely. remotely. Yeah. But they were, uh, so we were sort of in their bubble. And one night we're at dinner about two weeks before they moved to LA. And my grandson had sort of a meltdown at the dinner table and went up to his room and I followed him up. I said, Joe, what's, you know, what's, what's going on? He said, grandpa, it's just very hard for a seven-year-old to move during a pandemic. Aww. <laughs> Aww. And I kind of went, well, I guess you know what's, <laughs> what's going on. And he said, you know, it was about was his friends. Of course, that's moving, mm. but he hadn't been able to even see his friends then. So Aww. these kids have. Poor guy. Yeah. But he's happy now. I get texts from him all the time and we do FaceTime. But now I'm with these kids, these two that are here in New York. Now, you were on Air America when the radio station began and had a great mission. And it arrived during the Bush administration. W. And W, the second Bush. And it was a great home base for progressive thinkers and talkers and comedians and so on. Yeah. And we had some trouble right out of the gate that probably not. I don't want to spend too much time on, but we were underfinanced. And right. because of that, we had, we shot ourselves in the foot at the starting gate. Cause like after a couple of weeks, we lost two of our big stations and we never had a budget to do billboards. We had crappy signals in a lot of, including in Minneapolis, we had pretty crappy signal. So, you know, when Fox News started, they spent a billion bucks, you know. And when Air America started, Less, less, much less than a billion. But, you know, if you think about who's come out of that, you know, Rachel Maddow, right. uh, Lawrence O'Donnell was a regular guest on my show. And right. Mark Marin has become, yeah. Well, he does a great, great podcast. Yeah, we had a lot of people. But if you look at the footprint at MSNBC, you know, obviously Rachel is a big part of that. And Lawrence. And Lawrence. Yeah. No, I mean, MSNBC, I guess, is Air America, but bigger and, and more successful, successful <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but but you I, know, had two million. Uh, maybe- I had 2 million distinct <laughs> listeners a week. So that was... Yeah, it was it was great. And of course, I had my radio job at Greenstone, and we had even less money. Greens- what and, was Greenstone, uh, if you pardon my... Yeah. Well, you remember you would see me in your studio when you were in New York, right? Because I used your room from nine to twelve. You were you were broadcasting part time from Minnesota by that point. Oh, but okay. Greenstone was the network started by Jane Fonda and Gloria Steinem to be a women's network for women and men. Right. <laughs> and um, and children. It, and children. And children and pets, yes. And we could have also achieved something terrific, but the financing was not good. And <laughs> shortly after, my show won a couple of Gracie Awards. Fabulous. Yes, thanks. We found out we were having a meeting. And I, I won a, a few meeting. George Awards. That was a George and Gracie Gracie joke. and yeah, George. Yeah. I got it. I got I'm it. Sorry. I got it. Yeah. You have to be no, really old it. to get that one. <laughs> Hilarious. Well, he was since he Jack was, Benny. Uh, sui generous. He was, you know, and the, the great ones are right. I mean, yeah, uh, Burns and Allen were amazing, and she was 
you know, you thought that he was a straight man and she was the, the hilarious one, but then he, you know, his career post Gracie was also huge. Huge. Oh my yep. God. George Burns became a big, big star. And I think he was still performing when he was 99 years old he, in he, Las Vegas. He was so funny. I had an opportunity to meet him once. And I said, uh, so you've been in show business for 93 years. What advice <laughs> do you have for anyone in our audience who's interested in doing that? And this is what Burns said. Always take your wallet on stage. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, that is great. That is great. <laughs> and he was really brilliant as well. Yeah. He had to have been. And also, in those days, those comics were totally invented, self-invented. Well, they had both I come, mean, they had come out of vaudeville, of course. They came out of vaudeville, but they came out of poverty. Their parents put them on the stage, you know, to derive some income. A lot of comedians that I know, that's how they develop their material. And they work out at clubs, you know. I mean, right now, it's been a very, very difficult period for any performer, yeah. you know, musician or anybody. And i hoping for any actors, for Broadway. This has been a very tough time for all those people, everybody. And I'm just hoping that everybody takes their vaccine and that we can <laughs> open up. You know, I was actually performing. I was touring doing theaters and my last show was in New Haven. And I started, <laughs> I think I opened with, well, I've got some bad news. Uh, we're all quarantined. Evidently, <laughs> the usher has a cough. Uh, this was last March yep, or yeah, February? Last, this was my last yeah. show. And I said, uh, oh, this wow. may be the last show of public performance that any of us ever are, you know. And uh, so oh, I'm yeah. trying to make it memorable. But no, it's going to be great when people are able to experience music, experience sports, experience comedy, theater together. Everybody wants to do that. Everybody, everybody wants to see their friends and give them exactly. a hug. I know I do. Well, it's been such an honor getting this time with you, oh, Al. I really, yeah. no, I mean it. And I've enjoyed it and I've learned some things. And it, Well, I, I hope so. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I would love to ask you about the five things that make your life Absolutely. better. Absolutely. Uh Okay. okay, so I'll start with friends. During this period, it's really been important <laughs> for me to talk to friends and get on Zoom with friends. And I just love my friends. And one of the five things is laughing. Uh, that's number three. <laughs> right. And, but they're very related. And so I spent a lot of time. John Marcus, you talked about a mutual yes. friend. I must talk to him several times a week. And John, for your audience, is a comedy writer. Like and mine. he's just, uh, just a great friend. And I have a lot of friends that, you know, my former staff at the Senate, I talk to them all the time. And I've actually caught up with friends that I hadn't been seeing because they were not around me. But now mm -hmm. that doesn't make any difference, does it? So, <laughs> no. <laughs> so friends are really important to me, and I try to be a good friend. So, uh, friends. 
Okay, that's number one. Number two. Number two, I picked policy, which is weird. I bet you no one has included. So far, you're the first. So far. Yeah. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I do this podcast, right? And it's a kind of a political slash public policy podcast. I do it once a week. And when I started doing it a couple of years ago, I said that I just did not want it to be news of the day because mm-hmm. news of the day and particularly political news of the day, because we get plenty of that. You know, you get that on an overdose of news. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've listened to some podcasts that do that. And to me, it's just sort of chewing over gossipy politics in a way. And to me, what's much more interesting is policy. So, for example, I had Slavit. Now, Slavit, we're talking about COVID, which is we're right. always talking about COVID, but he is a pretty good authority on He sure is. On that. And so I will try to have people talk about, I'm probably going to do one on the border and on immigration. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in education policy, healthcare, especially. I was on the health, education, labor, and pension. Right. So obviously interested in policy regarding all of those. And I'm speaking tomorrow to the building trade unions in Iowa. And because this stuff is so important to making progress to the way we live, that's something that is important to me. Okay, number three. Laughing. Laughing. I I laugh a lot and I love to laugh and I love comedy. I mean, that's why I became a comedian. I was born in 1951, and in 1957, Sputnik went up. And Mm -hmm. my parents marched me and my brother into our living room. My brother's five years older than me and said, you boys are going to study math and science so we can beat the Soviets. And I thought that was a lot of of pressure to put on a (laughs) six-year-old. But we were very obedient sons. My dad didn't graduate high school, and my mom didn't go to college. But we studied math and science. My brother went to MIT. And became wow. a photographer. And, As one doesn't. And, and then <laughs> I went to a nice school and a good school and I became a comedian. And what happened was I got to school. I was majoring in a science track and I didn't, <laughs> I realized I didn't like science. You know, Dana Carvey once said, the only reason to be a comedian is you absolutely have to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had to be. Because my dad loved comedians and loved to laugh. And my dad inhaled the pipe his whole adult life. And if he would start laughing, getting on a laughing jag, he'd cough up phlegm. And so, and he, oh, that's how you knew a comedian was good. If, if Johnny Carson said, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Buddy Hackett, my mom would, my <laughs> mom would stand up and leave the room because <laughs> she knew where that was going. Oh, how funny. So John and I had Buddy Hackett on our show. And so years later, I'm on a plane from New York to L.A., and Buddy Hackett is on the plane. I'd never met him. And I go up to him and say, Mr. Hackett, I can't tell you how important this is to me, how much you meant to me, mean to me. And my dad loved, loved, loved. And he says to me, guy goes into a doctor's office. He's got a dot on his forehead. The doctor says, oh, my God. He goes, well, what is it, doctor? He, he says, uh, well, in six weeks, you're going to have a penis growing out of your forehead. 
And the guy says, well, doc, cut it off. He said, I can't cut it off. It's attached to your brain. You die. The guy says, so doctor, what you're telling me is that in six weeks, every morning when I wake up and look in the mirror, I'm going to see a penis going out of my forehead. Doc says, oh, no, 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 no. You won't see it. The balls will cover your eyes. <laughs> That's how he said hello or thank yeah. you. And then he told me a couple others before saying hi. <laughs> oh my god that's so great oh my god you know of course that kind of comedy couldn't exist now either and maybe that's what Swibel was talking about I don't well, know Swibel is a great friggin joke writer he is a good joke but no, writer I think Swibel sells himself short he could write on the show now I think some weeks they're not as funny as they were when he wrote it and you wrote it. Some weeks we but weren't as funny as we were the week before. Yeah. That's the nature yeah. of comedy. You th do you think that show still matters? Well, you know, it's a different world now because it's all it's click stuff, right? So right. I don't know how they judge ratings or stuff like that, but it gets millions of views like their political sketch or something like that. And, you know, a great piece of comedy is a great piece of comedy. And it's the only sketch show. And it's timely. It's the, it's the, only, it's the only one. Sketch yeah. show. It's a weekly sketch show. And thank God for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Okay. Number four, grandchildren. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I, it's really, in your opinion, grandchildren are everything that they're cracked up to be and more. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Now, as I said, we were sort of in the bubble of my daughter's family. And mm -hmm. they ended up moving on us to LA a few months ago. And when I heard about it, I cried. Sure. Love, and, and we would go over there and I put them to bed and it was just, it's amazing. <laughs> and they were so different. Like my grandson, the one who said it's so hard <laughs> to move during. It's so hard to move during. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's a reader. And so I would just sit on the bed with him and he'd read. And at a certain point, he'd get sleepy, and I would sing to him, sing Grateful Dead, and uh -huh. go to sleep. Now, his sister, <laughs> so I would switch off Who's between four. them. Yeah. His sister had right. no intention of going to sleep while I was there. So I would go in there, <laughs> and basically, she would just tell me the plot of the latest Paw Patrol, which is a cartoon uh -huh. show. And she would do dialogue from it. She would tell me the that's, whole plot and also do the dialogue. Oh, that's adorable. And yeah. also, when she wasn't... Well, she tried to keep you interested, right? Well, to tell you the truth, I had watched Paw Patrol a number of times, and nothing about it kept me interested, except uh -huh. the fact that she was doing the dialogue, which was hilarious. And then, when she wasn't doing that, she would jump up and down on the bed. And ah. then she also at one point thought it was funny that she got a little flashlight and was shine it in my face, in my eyes. Mm. <laughs> That's always and fun. After a certain amount of time, my son-in-law would just come in and go like, okay, grandpa's out. You got to go to sleep. <laughs> so I had these completely <laughs> opposite grandchildren. And now I got uh -huh. a five-year-old Jacob, who's the sweetest, sweetest boy. And he's coming over after supper. Right. His sister, Claire, who's about to be two, is just a hellion. <laughs> wow, that's so funny. Yeah. And wonderful. So grandchildren are pretty great for grandparents. 
And what was terrible is that grandparents couldn't see their grandchildren during all this. Yeah. And then number five for a big, big conclusion. Franny. Yes. Franny and I have been married since 1975. So that's 45 years. So that was Carter? You got Uh, married in the Carter? I think we got married in the Ford. Yes, Ford. Wow. Yeah. You're one of the few things made by Ford that still lasts. Well. That was a bad joke. I'm sorry. Yeah, actually. Did you see Ford versus Ferrari? I did. I did see that. Yeah, that was a good movie. That was a good movie. Uh, Franny and I watched it it together (laughs) because we were trapped together during COVID. (laughs) What's what's the best thing you've watched, the two of you, since you've been trapped? God, we watched a lot of great stuff. Parasite, of course. Yes, Uh, that was wonderful. Actually, that was such a good crop of movies, if you think about that. Like Parasite. Also had 1917. Oh, 17. That was wonderful. That was friggin' great. Yeah. And uh, what else was in that class? And Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. Which is a terrific film. It Um, was a sleeper, actually, wasn't it? It was. It didn't really get what it... I mean, Parasite was unbelievably great, and but so was 1917. Well, Al, it's... it's, You wanted me to talk about Ted Cruz? Because I... Oh, you're just taunting me because it's too easy. But really, when we found him in Mexico, was that not the greatest, most self-revelatory move in how he blamed his kids? And lied. And lied. That's the best part. (laughs) It was... He went right to his instinct. I mean, it's a reflex. It must be a reflex. And plus... He has a very capable wife who could have taken the kids to Mexico. She uh, went to Harvard uh, Business School. She is a managing partner at Goldman Sachs. I think she could have handled a flight from Houston to Cancun. Yeah, <laughs> but I the think... kids are pre- are fairly old too. I mean, they're right. Not- the kids can probably <laughs> pack their own suitcase. They're not babies. No, he, I mean, look, he's just. I have this line, which is it happens to be true. Has that I probably like Ted Cruz more than most of my colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> it's the best. It's and it's the best. true. And I'll tell you why it's true. Because Ted fancies himself a fan of comedy. And so every once in a while on the floor, like Ted would come up to me and go like, a friend of mine were watching us, you know, an old SNL and saw you with Stuart Smalley with mm-hmm. Michael Jordan, and it was brilliant. And that's why I like Ted more than most of my colleagues. <laughs> oh, how funny. But I hated him. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you He's, know. I remember when a fellow on Twitter, when Ted Cruz was running for president, said, how do you do? I was his roommate at Princeton. Right. Craig Mazin, I think is his name. I can't remember what his And name. said... I guarantee you, if you put your finger in a phone book and land it on a random name, that person would be a better president and a kinder person or something. I mean, I guess Ted Cruz is one of the loathsome. I mean, I look at him and I find him repulsive, but I never had to be in an elevator with him. 
The thing about the Cancun thing is that it overshadowed his role in January 6th. In fomenting January 6th. Yeah. And that's, which, yeah. You know, he led him and Holly mm-hmm. led the effort in the Senate, and there were 13 of them, Republicans, to challenge the certification of the election. And that, and also spending all the time leading up to that, repeating the charges that this was stolen. A stolen election. And that is ugly and horrible and damaging. That is something that is so damaging. And you can understand Donald Trump doing it, but all these yeah. Republicans who did it. And also, God. these guys like Hawley and Cruz in particular, they went to Harvard Law School or Yale Law School. I mean, I've seen their law professors lamenting them. Yeah, uh, I mean, they're not... They're uh, not stupid. No, they're book they're smart, just, certainly. And yeah, they just play stupid on TV, I guess. No, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And it really was destructive. It was destructive. I read that your former colleague, Sheldon Whitehouse, is talking about having a hearing now that Merrick Garland is the attorney general about the Kavanaugh hearing, about the approvals that he feels that it was done, as we know, in a rushed fashion that some of the You're witnesses- You're talking about the, the FBI investigation. Yes, the FBI investigation. Do you think that's going to happen? I don't know. Sheldon is a friend of mine, and I should actually talk to him about this because there's aspects of that hearing or the hearing after Blasey Ford or with her and with him where he did not tell the truth. Right. And there's something he said in that if you go back to looking at what the transcript of what he said, the FBI hearing he's talking about was simply just like interviewing four people who had been at the party, right? Right. And none of them remember being at the party. Well, who remembers being at a party 30-some years ago when nothing happened to you? Except one of them was this guy who was his friend, Judge, Mark Judge. And he said he didn't remember the party. Well, that's probably because he was, both of them were blackout drunks. Right. And Mark Judge wrote a book about being a teenage blackout drunk. And in that book, there was a character named Bart O'Kavanaugh. Do you remember this? Right. Yes, I do. And do you remember in that hearing that Amy Klobuchar asked him, have you ever drunk to excess where you didn't remember? And he went, no, of you. No, of you. Right. And man, oh, man, if that isn't, oh, you're an alcoholic. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, we got Bart. It. No one's that defensive. And that so, actually took my breath away. And uh, yes. So if you go to the transcript, he says of these four witnesses that they refuted charges. And but they didn't. No, they didn't at all. And a county judge has to know the meaning of refute. Right. And they did not. All they said was they didn't remember this party. And of course, Mark Judge was at the party. Mm-hmm. If Blazing Ford <laughs> is, you know, I'm sure she was recalling a real thing. And I don't know what happened. I don't want to, you know, but they should have actually done a real investigation. But he also had lied on other occasions, too. He lied about whether as he was in the White House counsel and he had used uh, material that was stolen from the Democrats. Do you remember this issue? that when he was confirmed for the circuit court, 
he lied about that and he lied about it again in this. Oh, yeah. And then also he lied about being involved in Judge Pickering's Judge uh, Pickering. His hearing, which he was involved in. And we learned that from the materials that had to be made public. So he had lied about that. So And he didn't have the temperament, as we saw, because he got easily provoked, easily angered. We saw that he didn't have the temperament for well, that kind of jurisprudence. That was an extraordinary situation in terms of, you know, I think he was playing the one guy. He was playing to Donald Trump. And- he was playing to him, and he wanted to look strong for his patron. And then... Then there were all the women at Yale he had offended that yeah. wouldn't get, you know, it was like once the, Clarence the main Thomas. Thing, it, the main thing is, is that there should have been due process and the due process was not properly done by the Justice Department and the FBI. And that's why Sheldon is bringing this up. And so part of my complaint was he really, and he lied to Sheldon. Sheldon asked uh-huh. him what some of the things that were in his yearbook. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. What they meant, he lied about those. You you can't lie if you're a Supreme Court. You can't be a liar. (laughs) Be a Supreme Court justice. So, but don't get me started. Yeah, okay, okay. (laughs) I won't, but boy, oh boy, can't wait till you're back in the saddle there. We'll see. We'll see. But in the meantime, the Al Franken podcast. In the meantime, (laughs) that's exactly right. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Al Franken, former senator from Minnesota and the host of the Al Franken podcast, which you you can subscribe to (laughs) on YouTube at Al Franken. You can also follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Al Franken and on Facebook at Senator Al Franken. My guest website is alfranken.com. My blog is at lisabernbach.com. I see we found the same naming artists who came up with the names of our podcasts and well, our websites. Uh, yeah. Five Why things not? that make life life better. Life yeah. better is is an actual title. It's an actual <laughs> title. Yeah, it's true. And but, you know what? You know. I should have included your podcast as one oh. of the five things that make oh, life doll- better. Oh, darling. Darling, thank you so much. Uh, My blog is where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spresso Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until we meet again, please wear a mask and act natural. (laughs) Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday if she remembers.